Welcome back to the Hacking Autism Podcast. This is episode one of season two, and today I am joined by one of my favorite people. His name is Christopher Lutz, and so I'm going to let him tell you a little bit about himself. All right. Well, as Kelsey had said, my name is Christopher. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was eight and with uh, Asperger's syndrome, a high-functioning form of autism, when I was about 12. Uh, I'm 26 now, so I've had 14 years, more or less, of knowing about it and studying it. And I think that I've really come to embrace it as a part of me being me and appreciating it for what it is. And luckily, I am not the only one. I have uh, five siblings, three of them biological, two adopted. And I have a good relationship with my entire family, my parents, my siblings included, especially my older brother, Nathan, who is two years older than me, and he has been uh, a really big influence on my life. He is wise beyond his years, and I look up to him both as a teacher and a friend as well as a brother. And especially my brother Nathan and my mother have spent a lot of time studying my Asperger's along with me and learning about my shortcomings and my strengths and how to deal with them, how to address them and how to work with them. And due to that, I think I have had a very successful time dealing with my autism and its drawbacks and strengths. Sure. So when you were first diagnosed, what did that feel like? What, you know, the drive home from the doctor or the psychologist, what was going through your head? What, what did you feel in your gut after that diagnosis was given to you? It, uh, it wasn't as strange as I thought it was going to be. Uh, I had went in with both of my parents at the time of my diagnosis, and uh, it, was, it was very insightful to learn, you know, this isn't just a complete abnormality and whatnot. There is a name for it, and there are things that you can learn about it, and it wasn't just oh yeah, your son is is weird because mm-hmm. really I don't like using the word weird when it comes to people because it implies so many expectations and frequently prejudices when you apply that word to someone. So I really try to avoid using it, but unfortunately there aren't a ton of words in English that can take its place without being somewhat stigmatic themselves, so... Now, you called out English specifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, You speak more than one language. Tell us about that. Yep. Um, When I was in high school, uh, about 15 or 16 years old, my brother, that I get along with very well, introduced me to anime. He introduced me to the anime called Bleach. And when I started watching that, I, I fell in love with it and started watching anime not only with my brother, but in my own spare time. And eventually I got to the point where I could understand about 80% of what they were, what was being said in the anime without any subtitles. And one morning before I headed to work, I was watching a favorite show of mine called Gintama, which is a parody show, very funny. And I was watching an episode without subtitles, and I was laughing very hard in the morning, and my mother comes out and says, can you understand what they're saying? And I said, oh, yeah, they're making a joke about such and such. And my mother says, why don't you try learning Japanese? And I'm like, 
oh, that's, that sounds like an okay idea. Sure. I, I had tried learning Spanish before, but it never really took off. And within a year, I was going to Normandale Community College and taking Japanese courses in PSEO, and I had straight A's in all of my Japanese-related wow. courses. And I, I took to the language like a fish to water. And part of the reason that is, is it's not just a peculiar quirk of mine, apparently. My, uh, my family was a very good acquaintance with the head of the disabilities office at Normandale. And she told us that almost 80% of the autistic students that she knew at Normandale, when they took a second language, took Japanese. Hmm. And there's a lot of speculation as to why, but uh, many indications from reports that I've read from other people like me and whatnot is because of how Japanese is a very formulaic language. If you learn the rules, you can almost always dissect a sentence or construct a sentence successfully. And there are very few exceptions. For example, there are only two irregular verbs in Japanese, to go and to do. And even the way that they are irregular is not that strange. And so once, uh, as memorization of formulas and whatnot is a strong point of myself, and I would believe many other autistic individuals, I was able to learn many of these rules with Japanese and just stick them together even before I started taking the language. And it's part of the reason why, to this day, I still really enjoy speaking it and learning it. I graduated from the University of Minnesota with a major in Japanese and a minor in teaching English as a second language because my dream is to one day go to Japan and teach English. That's amazing. And so when you mentioned the value of applying formulas and, you know, consuming formulas so that you can then speak the language, how do you think formulas come to life in the context of social situations? Because people are full of variables and they don't always react Indeed. the way that you think Indeed. that they will or should. And, and so that's very unstructured. People tend to be unstructured. And so have you had a challenge with that, or what does that look like? I have, uh, as I would think many people mm -hmm. like me have. Uh, and this is where uh, my brother and my mother have come in to help me so much. Because there are, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there are times when all of us look at a situation and how we think the situation should be handled or how we could respond and we can give you a perfectly good reason as to why we would say something yet every other person in the room would look at you like you're from Mars and you said something absolutely ridiculous and trying to quantify that in a formula is very difficult because that quote-unquote formula varies for each person however what my mother and brother were able to do was basically give me an input as to, oh, this is where your formula, even though you think it's okay and you can describe why you think it's okay, mm -hmm. why it might not look okay to others. So basically, because of the help from my mother and brother, I was able to set... Uh, definitions in those formulas where 
I would get to them and say, even though I think I'm fine, I might not be. And here are some reasons, even if I don't agree with why, why other people might think it's not good. And just quite frankly, as frustrating as it can be, trial and error of putting yourself in a situation where you say the wrong thing and you have to address it and learn why and that and you have you have to be willing to address it because if you don't address it you're likely to make that mistake again and something that i do with especially my brother is we we talk about my mistakes very openly and where they're wrong or why they're wrong even if i don't necessarily agree with it just to help me broaden my worldview something that i've noticed that is unique about you that I've seen in stark contrast to others that are on the spectrum is a really, really healthy dose of humility when it comes to feedback. I think, right, the self-awareness is something that Mm -hmm. we all struggle with, but it then comes to this next step is, well, what do you do when someone says, hey, let's, you know, let's think about that variable or that situation Mm -hmm. differently. And I've worked with some that are saying like, you know, the world's broken. I don't need to change, like the yep. world needs to evolve to me, which, you know, there's some arguments there in I, terms of like I the world being more agree. accepting, no I doubt. Agree. And then there's also that reality of, well, if we want to have a larger friend circle or if we want to work with clients and customers, we also have to somewhat rise to the occasion. So I think mm-hmm. I'm just ranting about how humble you are. And what I want to key in on is, where do you think you found and established, cultivated your humility? Do you think it's because you have so many siblings? I do. I think that, uh, so for context, my family is probably the single most competitive family you will ever see. We get told that by everyone. Basically, anything and everything that can be a competition will be turned into a competition. And I wouldn't want to have it any other way. But this also happens a lot, especially with the uh, sibling pecking order, so to speak, with teasing. And when I was uh, much younger, I was very overweight for my size. When I was 12, I think I weighed 178 pounds. How tall are you? And at that time, I was not even five feet. Okay. So I was... I was grossly out of shape, but uh, with some, a little bit of exercise and working with, whether it be siblings or going and doing stuff at the local YMCA, I really started to trim down and I hit my growth spurt. And I grew to the point where I was no longer obese and I could look back at myself and say, ah, yes, I... I was, as my oldest brother referred to me as, a tub of lard, affectionately, or lub of tard, he said. <laughs> uh, but looking for the opportunity to poke fun at if someone said something wrong or set themselves up for a joke is oh so very standard in my family. And it's something that I, I love about my family because it just... Assuming nobody is in a rotten mood to begin with, it helps keep people laughing and whatnot. And since losing my weight, I have somewhat gained my weight. I would say I'm slightly obese right now. I'm 6'1", and I weigh 220 pounds. But 
I, I, I can, I can joke about my weight. I feel comfortable admitting, you know, I'm still kind of big and whatnot. And it just means that when someone makes a joke about me being overweight, I am willing to go along with that joke to make it funnier for everyone else because I, I'm willing to make myself the butt of a joke, especially if I'm controlling how much I'm being made fun of to make other people laugh. I really enjoy laughing at funny things, whether it be YouTube videos or some news outtakes or whatever. I love laughing. And I think so much of the key, especially if you grew up in a scenario with mine with either friends or family who like poking fun at you, is just to go along with it. Like when I was a child, and I would think that maybe your mother told you this, Kelsey, when you're getting bullied, the, the best way to do it is to not fight back and not react. Because if you don't react, they're going to lose the will to do it eventually. That was, that was what I was taught. I don't know if you were taught something similar. I don't know if I ever received that feedback. And I also was never willing to implement such advice. I always went toe-to-toe with the bully. And I have a, I have a bit of a righteous um indignant side of me where if i see someone getting picked on oh like, i i do I'll as be, well i'll be in your face but, and so anyways yeah. but so you but that, that was feedback. that was the feedback that i got from my parents and obviously when you're younger and being made fun of like that it's 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 really hard in the moment to just be like you know what i'm okay with that but as i got older and matured i i grew to start accepting that and <laughs> there, I now have very funny stories about it. One of my favorites happened roughly, uh, let's see, it was January of this year, so about eight months ago. My sister-in-law was eight months pregnant at the time. And we were talking about family games that we could do, and one of them was a game that we call Round Robin Ping Pong, where... You have multiple people standing around a ping pong table and you play ping pong, except when you hit the ball across the ping pong table, you put the paddle down in the middle of the table and rotate. And if you mess up, you then step out of the ring and there are just less people. Of course, as you get fewer and fewer people, you have to move faster and faster and it gets quite difficult. Well, my mom brought up the round robin ping pong and I looked at my sister-in-law and said, uh, would you be okay to play something like that? I mean, I'm not even pregnant, and I have a hard time keeping up with it. And my brother, without missing a beat, says, with how fat you are, Christopher, you might as well be pregnant. <laughs> and everybody, myself included, had a great laugh from it. I think it was just a spurt of creativity, and I, I loved that. Sure. I just think it was great. And I think part of the reason... I was able to laugh at that and enjoy that nowadays is because I have more or less come to acceptance with the fact that I am A, overweight, and B, mature enough to take something like that because I know it's a joke. And I think that value of being able to look at yourself as objectively as possible and be realistic with yourself is so important. Uh, Two years ago, I went studying abroad in Japan for a year and a half. Not a year and a half, a month and a half. My apologies. And uh, 
obviously as a 220 pound 6'1 Caucasian male, I am considerably larger than the vast majority of Japanese individuals. And being willing to make fun of myself because of my size or the fact that I don't necessarily give the image of, oh, this person appears very smart, you know, and being able to uh, address that op openly to them and when they would talk to me and say, oh, I know that I look this way and this and that, but I'd like to show you otherwise. And being willing to make fun of myself when I was over there was something that was, I think, very novel to them because I would say for the most part in Japan that back and forth culture isn't necessarily the same as it is in the States. Now, of course, I have limited exposure, but I, I think there is a good argument for that. But showing them that I could do that and relate with their own thoughts about me just really opened up a lot of conversations and possibilities over there uh, and just a lot of opportunities for me to learn, uh, especially when there would be social gatherings with the study abroad students. Uh, I frequently found myself talking with the teachers and learn and speaking with the teachers about stuff that I was learning and rather than trying to just hang out with the kids, m me showing that I was mature enough to not only keep up with their Japanese for more advanced conversations, but that I was willing to address my own failures for the sake of learning with them really opened a lot of doors for me. And I got to learn so much while I was over there and I really enjoyed it. And so in summary, you would say the secret to your humility is looking at yourself with a light heart, receiving family you know, jokes or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes a foundation for when someone's not joking, but they do give you feedback on something, you're more willing to accept yep. it. I think uh, now that you've said it that way, I would say that it comes down to a core value of mine, which is efficiency. I like doing things as efficiently as I can. I mean, who, who doesn't? I would argue to some extent people value efficiency. I think I value it more than other people. And you always hear about, you know, quotes like time is money or how, how valuable time is and realizing that time is important to everyone. It might hold different values, but it's still important to everyone. So the less time you waste of your own, rather than trying to deny a mistake or subvert it, the, the quicker you address it and deal with it, the more time you save whoever you're dealing with and the more time you save for yourself. And I think that that, just realizing that hey, time is really important to myself and everyone, and the best, one of the best ways to do that is to just accept correction and move on was a really big realization that I had because that, that value of efficiency is so core to so many things that I do, whether I realize it or not. So 
I think just as the listeners, you thinking about your own values and what really drives you is very important to understanding yourself and improving yourself as well. So I would, I would challenge people to think about what things they really don't want to compromise on and what really drives them in their own lives as well. Sure. So in your situation, it's efficiency, and then you're willing to, okay, go with the flow. How can I optimize that, Kelsey? Dot, dot, dot. Others might say, you know what? I want to have friends no matter what. Like, that's my top priority. I just don't want to be alone. And if that's the case, maybe it is. You do a deep study of social constructs and the way that we talk about our weekends or we talk about Mm -hmm. our plans for the weekend or about how bad the Vikings are every year, which is one of my like my token statements that I make when I socialize with people is like I, talk, I pick a pro sports team of wherever they are, which I'm, we're in Minnesota right now, and the Vikings are rarely good. And so I, can, I don't even have to do the research. I can just be like, oh, the Vikings. Mm. Yep. And, and I'm usually pretty covered. Oh, and, yes. Um, I, I worked uh, uh, eight years straight in – a at a McDonald's restaurant in the drive-thru that was what I was good at and being able to uh, talk with I can very closely relate with the Vikings with people who would come through whether it be on Sunday morning or afternoon after a bad game and just being able to identify with that with the customer just for a short period of time was so important to making sure that even if they came in on a in a poor mood, they left with a smile on their face. And that was my policy at McDonald's. You know, even if I wasn't the fastest or the most polite, if I could make someone leave the drive-thru with a smile on their face, I was doing my job well. That's awesome. Now let's pivot to video game culture. I know that you don't want to talk about this at all. Not at all. Definitely (laughs) definitely not a gamer or anything like that. uh, I mean, yeah, (laughs) who cares about computers? Um, so I would like to talk to you and, um, I would love to have a discussion around being someone on the spectrum and finding community in the gaming community itself. And so do you find that it, with the anonymity of gaming, that you feel like you're treated as an equal, as someone that's not on the spectrum? Do you think that, like, uh, I would just like to hear why gaming appeals to you overall and where you think autism has a place in that gaming community or why it attracts people? So something that, uh, uh, I've, I've been a gamer for a very long time, uh, but uh, something that really changed the way I viewed online interaction while gaming was playing my first massive multiplayer online role-playing game, which is basically, it, it was Final Fantasy XIV, A Realm Reborn. You know, you have swords and magic, and you fight monsters. Basically, that's it. But in this game, there were three different overall arcing types of players. There were uh, DPS, damage per second, or the people who would... Uh, deal a lot of the damage of the squad, the healers, who obviously kept everybody alive, and the tanks, whose job was to make it so that the enemies basically only targeted the tank. And naturally, the people who 
would get the most credit for killing a boss or whatnot are the people who deal damage. But that means that there is a very large imbalance of people who wanted to deal damage versus people who wanted to take the other roles. And I chose uh, the tank role as a starter, and I ended up playing healers as well, but I almost never played damage. And the reason why I enjoyed playing these supportive roles was I got to put myself in the shoes of another player. Because it was in a game and we had a clear-cut objective, I could more easily imagine a situation where, okay, let's say I was this damage dealer. What could the healer do for me that would be most helpful for me? And because it was a video game and a clear-cut objective and a small team, I could eliminate the possibilities of... I could eliminate variables and think, okay, well, I think this is what would be the best here. And I would play my roles basically completely just focusing on the team's success. And I found a lot of satisfaction from doing that. And it started branching into other games where the supportive roles were less clear-cut. And I think that those games were really a precursor to me really trying to put myself in other people's shoes because of, again, the limited variables and how I could think about a problem in a video game versus a problem in real life. And mm. as games get more and more complex, sure. you get more and more used to thinking of things in ways you normally wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a very big reason hmm. why I am... Don't get me wrong, I still have a lot of practice to do, and I will mm -hmm. need to keep practicing until I die, but I think I have improved a lot, and this is a strong point of mine, and I want to keep leveraging that. And so that was a really good starting point for me. Also, you had mentioned whether or not I would feel alienated uh, at times. I found, personally, that I was not alienated. I, And I think... I think that that is rare because of a lot of stigma, especially to do with uh, age of players. For example, uh, if if someone says, oh, he sounds like a 13-year-old mm -hmm. on a video game, that mm -hmm. is very clearly a derogatory phrase because, okay. uh, because of, you know, they would either talk too much or mm -hmm. complain or their voice would be too high and annoying. Sure. And whatnot. So, me making sure that all of my interactions, I was being overly polite, just a simple please and thank you, especially in gaming, goes a very long way. Mm -hmm. And I, I learned that at a young age and just applied that to how I deal with people. And rather than being alienated I would say I'm the opposite nowadays when I play with basically anybody on a game if I am actively interacting with them I am almost always receiving requests to play with them sure. and whatnot because just a little bit of politeness and valuing what the team should value mm -hmm. the team objective goes such a long way 
and it it definitely can be hard for people to be willing to sacrifice their own their own fun in the moment for the good of the team but for me i just gain so much more satisfaction seeing the team succeed mm-hmm. when i don't get the glory than i do when i fail and do well myself well in the way i would contrast the video game world versus the real world is if you don't have and like high school is the extreme version of this but if you don't have the right clothes or the right level of non-existent acne and perfect skin Mm -hmm. and you have to say the right things be in the right classes do all like all the air quote right things you don't even get a chance with some Mm -hmm. people and when i think about a screen separating individuals as you're having a collaborative experience online i am i'm pro video game spoiler alert um but you actually get to have that fighting chance to bring Mm -hmm. value to the group it doesn't matter if you're wearing basketball shorts or if you're wearing expensive lululemon pants or whatever it is they're actually more worried about like do you bring value to the team and are you nice to deal with or you know work with and so i feel i think that's why it um it attracts so many people from the autism community because it's like, hey, I get a fighting chance here to yep. like have friends, to have socialization. Yep. And though I don't know too many examples like off the top of my head, I do know a few examples of uh, high-level gamers who stream their games and personalities, whatnot, over the internet who are openly uh, autistic mm-hmm. and are like, you know what? If you think this is bad, quite frankly, bring it on. It's like, I'm here, I'm having fun, and I'm delivering my content to those who enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And I think, like you said, it's very empowering Mm -hmm. because when you you step forward with that and suddenly six other people who you very well might never hear from again step up and say, no, 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 you're doing the right thing. Keep rocking. It is so encouraging to know that you're not alone. And there's that sense of that imagined community there, mm-hmm. which is, it's so strong. Mm-hmm. I remember in, at the University of Minnesota, uh, basically all of my, all of my classes in some way or another found a way to mention uh, this article called Imagined Communities. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but basically- Google it. Uh, the, Not you, uh, but like listeners at point, home Google it. <laughs> right. The, the author's point in this article is that people imagining that they are like someone else is more relevant than them actually being like someone else. So even though you and your neighbor live basically on the same plot of land and you're very close to each other and you might go to a very similar job, you might feel more uh, uh, akin to someone who has similar interests and expresses themselves in a similar way, even if you've never met them. And it's, it's, a, very, it's a very good article. It's not too long. I want to say it's like three, four pages. But... Uh, I I think that that is so true, especially when it comes to a gaming community of people you you might not ever meet in person, but get along with well. I have a friend that I've known since, oh, when was Halo 3 released? 2003, 2004? And I met him on this game, and I've never met him in real life, but 
I, I know his full name, I know more or less where he lives in Florida, and we have gamed with each other over the years on dozens of different games, and I would not, I don't feel like it would be a stretch for me to call him a friend, even though sure. I've never, mm-hmm. never met him. Mm-hmm. I've known him for so long, and we, we know about each other's families and whatnot. I mean, it's like to the point where if I'm playing a video game with him, mm-hmm. and my little brother comes by, and says, who are you playing with? I say, oh, I'm playing with Scott. And he's like, oh, can I talk with him? And I put the headset on my sure. younger brother, and he has a conversation with him for five cool. minutes. And it's like, that, that is so cool. We have an agreement that uh, uh, one, one day, probably within the next like five years, we're going to get together in Florida and spend some time together. And it's just like, I can only imagine that you know, 20, 30 years ago, that mm-hmm. whole concept would just be so strange to meet with someone and then build a relationship without ever seeing their face like that. Yet, that's kind of the times we live in, and I think that, I think that's really neat. Well, and I heard it said by, um, he was a speaker on generational differences, and he spoke about how in the 40s and 50s, you would be very, very similar to the people in your community where you could drive within, and the people you saw often, you would be like them. Well, in 2019, a nine-year-old girl is going to be more similar and have more in common growing up with YouTube and internet culture. She might have more in common with someone in Japan than she would with potentially her own grandmother Mm -hmm. because there's that shared experience, even if it's digital. And I think it's causing all of us to question, well, what is friendship? And and I think move those lines. It doesn't have to be someone you eat lunch with all the time. Mm-hmm. It could be someone you play Halo with and you do share, you do life together. Yep. For, for me, a friend is someone who you can have a, a big fight with, a big argument with, and then make it up and continue being friends. If you can continue doing that with someone, putting strain on a relationship, yet repairing it and moving on, to me, that is a friend. Awesome. So. Okay. And so now the last part of our conversation, I want to talk about how we know each other. So we met through a nonprofit called MindShift and Christopher is actually the first hire at Spectrum QA. And so I have this theory, I have this uh, sinister plan to help the world. And the theory is that people on the spectrum are going to be better at testing websites, software, mobile applications than people that don't have autism. And so that was like my theory, and I read it in an article in The Economist eight, nine years ago. And I did that myself, but I wanted to see, well, could I do this with someone else with no technical experience? And so Chris Jeffer comes in um, (laughs) to my life. And we basically do a boot camp. We do this training to, you know, Christopher has the background of enjoying gaming and using computers all the time, but not necessarily like troubleshooting mobile clients and browsers and uh, feature validation. And yet, really in a very, very short period of time, you've gone from working at McDonald's to now you're working on really high-tech custom software. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about... One, the learning process as someone that's on the spectrum, and two, working with someone else on the spectrum. So, um, because, spoiler alert, I'm also on the spectrum, if you are new to the show. And so, number one, 
we did the boot camp over probably the span of like a month to a month and a half before mm-hmm. you were really, really going. Yep. What did that process look like to you and what was challenging about it? Oh boy. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, this is, this is a little bit a little bit trickier looking back sure. on it. It seemed to just go and come so naturally. Well, and so we started with kind of a lecture style. Then we did some hands-on training. Yeah. Um, and then, and like, I think you picked that up pretty quickly. I think that something that was really fun through our training time was that I would notice things in you. I was like, hmm, are you stressed right now? Do you need that to go take true. a lap? Yep. And and you'd be like, yes, uh, no, yep. And so like that, that's been really cool mm-hmm. working alongside you. You and I both have this awareness of the other of like, Kelsey's writing an email right now. Like yep. I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> yep. keep my hand gestures to a minimum. Or yep. or when you would, when you might do a little gesture with your hand, I might say, oh, was that a? I'm not sure what's going on here, or a? Oh, that succeeded and. Sure. Seeing seeing slight differences with that was nice. Mm-hmm. What, one of the nicest parts has been uh, a lot of the examples that we use with each other, though out of context, they make absolutely <laughs> no sense whatsoever. To anyone else. To anyone else. When we are in the moment and discussing, we don't even bat an eye at them. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, keep going. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and that has been very nice to save time. And... Uh, also, uh, what's been nice is a lot of the pacing uh, has not just been, oh, here's a bunch of details and like, see when you get these right. It's like, here's a little bit, let's review it and have you say it back to me, show me that you know it, then let's see you use it, now let's move on to a new thing. And we just start with the, the sure steps that are moving a little bit at a time and suddenly those those sure small steps are adding up and accelerating a lot and i have a good foothold you know mm-hmm. as i've been moving forward so there are some things where i i describe them in a way kelsey has to me to like my mother thinking you know oh yeah, people will get this this seems this was very logical and reasonable and this and that and i'll say something and my mom will be like okay i don't quite get this this and this about it and it's and to me i'm like Wait, but, but it, but it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And how does how does that not make sense? And then I have to reevaluate it and realize, oh no, it's just that Kelsey explained it really well and hit key parts, or, and or I'm good with this and could draw this to another parallel. And uh, to me, just the especially the use of parallels and making mm-hmm. sure you can equate it to something else to show that you understand that core concept running in between both has been so key to learning and succeeding with things as we've been going through them. That's awesome. And something else that stands out to me is the rate at which you have learned things has blown me away. I mean, I had one timeline and then the timeline that you were able to get up to speed was much faster. So that's awesome. And then number two, Shoot, where was, where was I going with that? Timeline. Oh, and then second, you have found bugs 
on mobile clients that we're testing that I never ever would have found. And so that's really, really fun to have, you know, not just, you know, one person testing, but to have it coming from two sides and, and then have that common language between mm -hmm. us about whether it be metaphor or we're going to go with the whiteboard and draw out, mm -hmm. okay, this role permission doesn't make sense. Well, what about this? And um, it's, been, it's been really, really amazing because I've always worked with people in my professional career. I've always worked with people that are not on the spectrum. And so I've always had to do the translating to, to thrive in their presence. And I've risen to the occasion. So that's, mm -hmm. it's not the end of the world. But working with you, it's like this like secret mother tongue that like we have <laughs> of like, I like mix my metaphors, mid metaphor. And I'm like, well, okay, this is broken. You're like, no, no, I'm, I'm tracking. I got this. <laughs> yep. And, and so that's been really a huge blessing to me of like, oh, I don't like have to break this down. Yep. I mean, like we're still explaining things to each yep, other, exactly. but there's that mother tongue of autism or the way our brain works that allows us to kind of move forward. Indeed. I have brought that up multiple times with my family and my little brother whom I game with. There are times when, when he asks me, you know, why do you like doing your, your job? You know, very honestly, mm -hmm. not, and I'll say, well, there are certain things that I think I'm good at doing, and I really like working with Kelsey because she understands me in ways that other people don't necessarily understand me. And I'll, I'll draw or attempt to draw a parallel for him with him communicating with people. He, uh, my little brother and my little sister are both African-American, and uh, I, I uh, talked to him, and I was like, you know, what if all of your friends you ever had were were white like me which isn't a problem but then you finally make an african-american friend and it's like there are some things that that friend is going to understand that your white friends would not understand and he's like oh yeah i see that and i'm like yep. it's kind of like that their best efforts right mm -hmm. and i'm like it's kind of like that with me and kelsey there are times where we understand things with each other that would take other people a very long time to really wrap their head around. And mm -hmm. I love the fact that I can do that. Well, and a couple of practical hacks that we've implemented in the office is number one, the first thing that we did right off the bat was we built a kind of a daily walk. Uh, we do a lap around the office complex where we office out of. And it's a nice breakup of the day I usually get to hear about anime mm -hmm. in some way or another. And I'm learning about Japan's culture, even though like China is where my heart lives. Respect. Um, but I, I respect the Japanese mm -hmm. and what they offer the world. So I get to learn about that. We do the lap and it's a nice cognitive reset before we go back to, you know, chapter two of our work. And then the second evolution of our time together has been the implementation of like fidget spinners and, Let's talk to the, the audience. Yes, please describe that so, uh, because there's no video today. Yep, I have a uh, somewhat compact rubbery ball that is maybe an inch and a half in diameter. And it has a hole punched through one of the axes with a... Uh, <laughs> I Just, would call that, in my opinion, that looks to me like a sport shoelace cutting through the middle of the tough turquoise ball. It's called stringy ball. Link will be yep. in the bio <laughs> of the show notes if you want one for yourself. And uh, 
I was trying trying to find a device for like stress relief and whatnot that I can mess with at work and my mom got me a few of these and was like, hey, you know, why don't you try a few of these? And this one stuck out to me of all of them because, not because of the ball, which is what you would think would be the main thing of the stress relief, but rather the string that's attached to it. I like wrapping it like around my hand and fingers and putting pressure on my hand as I work. And that is, has been a very, a pretty effective stress relief device for me. And uh, yeah, uh, I learned when I was younger about uh, the association between uh, an autistic individual and pressure on their body mm-hmm. calming them down. Mm-hmm. Whether it be a pressure vest or a blanket, I have a, a weighted blanket that's about 60 pounds. Wow. At my house, I can't use it during the summer, unfortunately, because it's too hot. But during a cold Minnesota winter... It's quite nice. And just realizing that kind of quirk of, hey, pressure and something restraining force like that, I find very stress relieving was really, really strange, but I think effective in this case. Mm -hmm. I agree. And something I've seen firsthand in your productivity, when I see you get stressed out, I'll say, like, I might suggest that you go Mm -hmm. grab the ball. And then I can see your mind go back to work and get to a place of focus, of calm. I use Chaco sandals, and I, like, cinch them down really tight to get the same um, same stimulation on my feet instead of my hand um, would be kind of the difference. But I see that, like, you get, like, in the zone, you calm down. I like to say my Chaco sandals are like a glass of red wine. Like, they just, whoo. And without the alcohol as, <laughs> as a consequence. And so um, with that, last thoughts. I just want to hear briefly if to the, you know, to the hundreds of listeners. Actually, I think we're at thousands of listeners across the globe in 20 countries. Thank you to all of you. What would your advice be or final thoughts on how autism can be your unfair advantage in the life you've lived so far? I think it comes back to the willingness to address mistakes and effectively look at those. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had a quote that we have put up in my home that says, uh, learn from the mistakes of others. You don't have time to make them all yourself. And Mm. it's... It's a bit sad because it's true. It's like nobody wants to think about, you know, the limited time we have. Sure. But that just that just goes back to saying time is valuable, you know. If let alone learning from someone else's mistakes, if you're not going to learn from your own mistakes, you're even in a worse way than that. So it's like you you got to be willing to to look at your mistakes and not only look at your own mistakes, have someone else look at your mistakes. From, and present that information in a new point of view because when you learn from that mistake and you understand it both the way you did before you made the mistake and once you have made it learning f- from someone else, you have just gained double power, double knowledge from that mistake and now you're ready to go apply it. And instead of someone who's worrying about their image and trying to come across as perfect – you are going to be the realistic, effective person 
who is just going to power through these problems. And there's nothing that is going to stop you once you do. It is amazing. Once, once we get our minds set to something, I mean, I know that I get hell-bent on just about anything that I'm doing. It can be trying to find a word for a paper or trying to do something in a video game. It's like, I am going to do this thing until I either succeed or I learn of something more valuable I'm going to do. And that is my unfair advantage that I have. Boom. Shakalaka boom. Well, with that, um, we're going to bring this podcast episode to a close. Thank you so much for joining me, Christopher. Thank you for having me. It was nice to be able to talk with you. And with that, we'll catch you guys next time.